0: The best relationships are built on learnable skills. The question becomes: Are we willing to learn these skills in community? Join John and Sungshim Lopnow as they bring your attention to the presence of God and practices that enable you to love deeply. And now, to tell you more about
1: today's episode, here's John and Sungshim. All right, we're here with Andrew Yang, uh, and we were just discussing how I discovered him. And I believe I'll I'll read his um, short like sentence or two on how he introduces himself on Substack. He says, coaching strength through mental health, former pastor and MFT student. I also love Bitcoin. So I love that, Andrew, uh, because I think I discovered you in the crypto world first. Then this guy is posting about mental health and Asian-Americans. And then who is this guy? And So it's, it's great to have you. Thank you for making time. And uh, yeah, if, if share, share something with uh, the audience here about, um, you know, those things, coaching strength through mental health. We'll get to it at the end, but what does that mean? Yeah,
0: John, well, first of all, thanks for inviting me on the podcast. Um, yeah. So this idea of coaching strength through mental health, uh, what well, for me, it's like, okay, so a little bit about myself. I'm an Asian-American. Um, I'm the first person in my family to be born in the United States. And um, one big part of my life has been mental health. Mm. And, um, and I think within the Asian-American context, uh, talking about mental health is not very uh, common and it's not very uh, well understood. Mm. And uh, for me, I've kind of realized that um, that I can be strong if I focus on my mental health, and that's just that concept in of itself was just so foreign to me. Because when I think of strength, like as 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 a man, as an Asian American man, I'm thinking of you know uh, of, of like physical strength, right? Or I'm thinking about you know um, endurance or uh, sacrifice. Or just uh, just taking on um, whatever pain that I receive, and just like being very stoic, right? When I when I think about strength from that perspective, like that's what I think of. But I've realized that no, like if if I want to thrive in my life, if I want to um, be strong as a human being, uh, you know, it, it helps for me to focus on my mental health, and so that's kind of like what I wanted to write about, and that's what I wanted to kind of hopefully, um, build a community around um, just people discovering their
1: strength, through mental health. Andrew, I really like that on so many levels, because I think that can be draw people in and be inspiring to rather than oh, mental health means something's wrong with you, which is like just commonplace among all cultures. Asian American takes that very like, that's a big barrier to accessing mental health. But if you access it through strength that's i think inviting and beautiful and i think it's true actually so i wanted to just ask you what drew you in do i know you you studied pastoral care pastoral counseling what drew you into that
0: into pastoral care and counseling yeah Um, yeah so i was on a missions trip uh to basically haiti and the philippines for about a year and uh during that time um you know, God was just moving so powerfully in my life, and I think He was healing me of a lot of things, a lot of anger and bitterness. And the beautiful part was, like, as He was pouring into me, I was just also pouring into other people at the same time. And it was just such a—it was just a beautiful time in my life. And uh, one of the things uh, I kind of felt resonated in my own heart was, you know, if 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 this is what ministry is like, then then I want to do this. Yeah, this is what I want to um, go full time into. And um, from there, I just felt a call to go into um, to pursue a seminary degree, and um, yeah, uh, to get an MDiv, a Master's of Divinity. And um, at that time, I didn't know there there are different like um, specializations you can get right. when you pursue a Master's of Divinity. Right? There's like pastoral general. There's like pastoral care and counseling. Um, there's like young adults or evangelism and the one that stuck out to me the most was pastoral care and counseling because I just love people. I just mm-hmm. love people. I love helping people, and so that's the one that I chose. And um, I it just, I just stuck with it because I just really enjoyed that program. That's and so that's kind of how I got into pastoral care and counseling. Well,
1: that's really cool. Is there a is there a class or a book or an idea that caught your attention? You know, because you know when you're in school, you're there for years, and it's a lot of anything that comes to your memory that kind of sparked or shaped you during those years of study?
0: You know, um, I would say that the, I went to Talbot, uh, yeah, to Talbot, and they did a really good job of actually teaching, like, counseling skills, counseling specific skills Mm. uh, within that program. And, you know, that's where I first got introduced to the concept of, like, uh, when you want to talk to somebody like your first job is to actually just like listen to them Mm. not try to fix them and i think that concept was so hard uh, for me to grasp and to do and um they were the first uh that was like the first place where they said yeah just try with people in your life with everyone around you and just Mm. like listen to them and try to be empathetic to them and um, yeah, that's what really, really first drew my eye uh, to counseling and therapy and, and mental health.
1: That, that mental shift of, oh, I want to, you know, I want to provide value, I want to, like, and, and I fix them, and that will be valuable. And that shift, the, the shift for you was, the value you provide is through listening.
0: Yeah, because, okay, so here's the twisted part, right? Because I realized that I wanted to help people because and I wanted to fix people and give advice like that was like the thing that really you know got me going back then. Um, I wanted to do that because there's a part of myself that wanted me to feel good. Mm-hmm. If because there's this aspect of like if I can help somebody, if I can just say something that you know will fix their situation right away, then yeah, then I feel great. Like um, it does feel good. It does. It does. Um, but I realized that you know it it's not like the best thing in the world because one. Um, I'm kind of saying that, like, they themselves can't fix their own problem, Mm -hmm. right? And I'm also kind of communicating that, like, uh, I'm smarter than them, you know, like, uh, oh, you couldn't figure it out? Well, listen to me, I'm like smarter than you. And then like, the the last piece is that, like, it's kind of creating like a dependent relationship on me. Hmm. Um, And, like, if I tell them the right thing now, then and I fix it, then they're going to come back to me and I'm going to fix it again and again and again. And so it kind of creates like a weird dependent relationship that I may not necessarily want. Right. Um, yeah. And so I've realized, man, just like listening to someone can be so such a profound experience and such a human, um experience for people that um, yeah, I, I try to really do that a lot in my friendships in my relationships with my family members and so yeah it's been it's been really cool
1: that is beautiful and i love how you are honestly sharing your self-reflection and your growth and your transformation and your journey and and you're right listening is often how we feel loved you know we when someone really gets us we feel like oh they know us we feel seen and heard and and that's an experience of love for most of us
0: yeah yeah i completely agree and um, it's kind of shocking, uh, like how difficult it was for me at the beginning to like listen well, and still is sometimes, you know. Because um, when people share stuff, like I catch myself saying, like, "Oh wait, but you should." Oh, oh wait, stop, enter, like, don't fix them, just listen, you know. Because it's so ingrained into like um, how I grew up and our culture, and uh, but yeah, it, I really do think it is a powerful, small little thing that anybody can do. Just to sit down and listen to someone, and
1: um, yeah, provide that experience for them. Well, the fact that you can catch yourself, as as can I, as do I, um, wanting to offer whatever a thoughtful response, an interesting nugget, a helpful tip, you know, in counseling, in with friends, and that there's a place for that. But it's how it, I think what you're referencing is how quickly and reactively we can go to that, rather than staying with them in their story where they are. That's awesome, exactly. So, so that's how you were drawn into pastoral counseling, and then, well, I want to go back to you said you were, um, you went on a mission trip for a year, so you lived there for a year, and then that is what uh, inspired you to go to study more. Interesting point of connection is Sung Shim has a similar experience. She she grew up in Korea. She went to the Philippines for a year. And that's when she discovered, oh, I wanna become, I wanna learn more and study more about counseling. So it was a little more, so a year in the Philippines, an island nation, and wow. then she studies counseling. So, do you know
0: what part of the Philippines she went to? Was it the north, the south? The
1: warm part.
0: Warm part, okay.
1: It's all pretty warm. So, no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't remember, um, but I do know that. Occasionally they would go on a retreat at a beautiful beach. That's that's all I know. I think she was in Manila. I think she was in Manila. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You
0: know, I, I went to Davao and that's like the southern part of the Philippines. Okay. Very cool she went there though.
1: Yep. So she lived there for a year. And then that's what where God and her interacted about going and studying counseling. So just Great. another interesting, fun I love those little points of connection and just I'm they they give me energy. So yeah. that, that's why I just wanted to share that with you and in, in our audience. So it's, we just, we build and we're brothers in way many more ways than we even realize. So thank you. And then you became, you, you entered the, the, you were a formal pastor. Yeah. Yeah. So what did I want to ask you two questions and then you can answer in the, the order, but what did you enjoy about being a pastor? And then what do you enjoy about being a former pastor?
0: Yeah. Um, what I loved about being a pastor, like first and foremost, was just like the opportunity to just study God's word in depth every week, mm. um, preaching every Sunday. And um, it required me to dig into um, scripture, like look at commentaries, look at the historical context, uh, the Greek and the Hebrew behind it, and just really um, deep think, uh, think deeply about like mm. the message that I felt like God was trying to communicate. And how I can package that well. And that whole process was just wonderful. Um, and I also really uh, enjoyed um, my community mm. and, and building community and being with people and doing life with them. Um, and just, uh, you know, Yeah. Providing quote unquote pastoral counseling to them, right? Yeah,
1: right. You had yeah. your, your your the the people you traveled and journeyed with that you could provide care and support and counseling. So that that's awesome, and that's and that you were part of your job was to study in depth. So when you're studying, you get you experience like nuggets of wisdom and truth and that are drawn out. So and how long how long did you do that for? Um, uh, I would say like maybe a period of
0: like five to six years.
1: Got you. Yes. And so then now um, you're not doing that. You are. So what, what are you doing now? And what do you enjoy about your um, your for you're not a pastor anymore, but I'm sure you're pastoral. It, that just continues with you.
0: Yeah. So what I do now is I work as a client advisor at a Bitcoin company called Casa and Casa is uh, a company where we help people keep their Bitcoin safe. And so, um, people, what people don't may not know about Bitcoin is you can buy and sell at a, an exchange like Coinbase or Gemini, or even like through, um, yeah, uh, through you can buy it through like GBT through Fidelity or something, but you can withdraw that Bitcoin into your own wallet. And so our job is to make sure you do it in a way that, um, is safe that you do it in a way where it puts like the least risk on you and that you won't lose your Bitcoin in any way. And so, that's kind of what I do um, now. And then, um, yeah, what was the second question that you had?
1: Well, first, just let me tell you how, like, I'm smiling so big because <laughs> I I never knew it would just naturally work where I'm talking to pastoral counselor, talking about mental health, who knows what they're doing and thinking about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in that whole sphere. Like, this is, is this for real, God? Is this, are you, are you messing with me? Like, Actually, Andrew knows these worlds, so like I just have a big smile, and it makes me happy because I I want to introduce people to wow. this space. Yeah. It is it is a it's like a hobby of mine. I mean, it's, it's my personal learning, but because I think it it is how the financial and uh, elect I I financial and how we will transact in life. It's the future, and it's here. it will be really big and i i just want my people and the people i love and people who are open to to learn about it and so i'm i'm super excited and happy that you're sharing in a way that seems like oh they andrew knows about this and he seems like a a good guy a good man with integrity so oh Bitcoin's not crazy and it's you know all those things i think we're beyond that but still people are leery about it so Yeah,
0: like a year or two ago, if I had to talk to somebody about Bitcoin, then they would have been um, like, "Huh? What is that? Are you crazy?" (laughs) But now, by now, like most, by and large, most people I talk to have heard about it. So, like, uh, we've talked about mainstream adoption about Bitcoin for a long time, and um, I feel like it's finally here. Finally uh, here. Yeah, and there's been like crazy huge announcements. Like, um, there's a publicly trading company called MicroStrategy, and Oh, they yeah. bought uh, Bitcoin and added that to their balance sheet, which is insane—a um, huge move. And uh, yeah, and so um, we're seeing a transition, I think, of, of um, Bitcoin becoming a a more um, legitimate asset class mm-hmm. that um, investors could take seriously. And so it's very exciting to me.
1: Yeah. Andrew, could you just tell my mom it is safe? <laughs> Yeah. You know what? Like
0: our service at Casa would be perfect for her because, um, you know, pe- like even my parents, they, have, they have, it's really hard for them to handle technology and stuff. And so, like, you know, we would like sit down with them, talk them through, you know, this is what you need to do. This is how you keep it safe. This is the things that you got to be careful of. And yeah, so um, I'll I'm tell love- them. Tell- yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Mom, I love you. <laughs> She's going to like yell at me after this. So, oh, okay. Yeah. No, no, just in a playful way, in a playful way. Um, but yeah, and then I even think of uh, Bitcoin as just a, a stand-in. I mean, it is it is legitimate, but also there's so much other technology behind Bitcoin and all those other platforms, like Ethereum and other technologies that will be tokens in a part of the future that is so exciting for me. And it gives an opportunity for the little guy to enter that realm with a little risk and and potential gains and and i just i'm looking out for the little guy the little the little gal and i think it's great so so it's just really fun for to be able to talk about god and spirituality and mental health and bitcoin all in one conversation with one human being i'm 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 happy so so how did you find this job and how's it going yeah. Uh,
0: so, you know, I was just I've just been super active in the Bitcoin community for several years. And um, I've hosted like a, a hackathon, an online hackathon. And I've written several articles oh. and um, developed a decent like presence on Twitter uh, at eCurrencyHodler. And um, eventually uh, I reached out to somebody because I saw a job opportunity at a startup, at a Bitcoin startup, and this was uh, River Financial, and um, just had an interview with them and did marketing for them for about a year. Okay, and after that, that ended in April, and then after that, I did. Um, I was a research intern at a blockchain venture capital buff, uh blockchain capital fund for a couple months, and then I saw this other opportunity at Casa, and I applied, and I already knew the team, and it was like a super fast interview process about a week. And um, yeah, they made me the offer sheet the week after. And so that's how I ended up being a client advisor for them.
1: Very cool. And I checked it out. And it looks great. Like I think, Oh, wow, what it looks like a good company and recognize some of the names. And that's awesome. Yeah, they've been around for a couple of years.
0: And uh, I'm, I'm very excited to join them.
1: That That's really cool. And so so now, you know, like, you're, you were a, a full-time pastor before, and then I'm just curious how that transition has been for you, you know, with the pastoral heart. What are some of the benefits of having that pastoral heart but not being a pastor that you appreciate? And then how do you like your life now as a former pastor?
0: Yeah, such a good question, John. Um, so here's one thing. To be honest, while I was a pastor, I felt very comfortable spiritually. Um, And so, when I'm comfortable, it means one of two things, I think: one that um, I'm in a bubble, right, Mm. Right? a Christian bubble, and I'm not talking to uh, non-Christians; or two that, like, I'm just not putting myself in a position, or I'm not um, taking evangelism seriously, right? It's one of those two things and as a pastor, I just felt super comfortable for a long time. Um, and I realized this because I was in a bubble and and I didn't, um, have the initiative to really like go out and evangelize. Um, and so now that I am not a pastor, um, I'm very much in a non-Christian context and I feel very uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, in a good way, because I feel challenged and, um, I, I host a monthly Bitcoin meetup and I've had several opportunities to talk about God with people who I, I would never would have as a pastor. And these are people who are very technical, very, um, I would say, not inclined to believe in in a higher being because they're very like science yeah. focused and, and whatnot. And um, yeah, and I just remember there's this one guy, um, God just totally encountered him uh, over like Christmas break and, um, and it just appeared to him through like social media messages and just, uh, in his own personal, uh, like dreams and stuff. Wow. And, um, he became a Christian and then it was just so weird because we were talking just at the meetup regularly and, um, and he was just sharing this randomly. And I'm like, dude, like I'm a pastor. So, or I was a former pastor. So we got lunch and he told me about like his experience and, um, and yeah, it was just awesome to walk alongside him during that period of time because uh, he didn't have a community, mm. and um, and so just like talking with him, praying for him, just hearing him out, and sh- you know, helping, um, you know, guy helping guide him in certain ways. Like that was like a really cool experience that I don't think I would have had um, yeah. as a pastor because I would have been in my bubble. Uh, and other experiences are just like even through like random interview processes uh, um, they would look, take a look at my uh, resume and my background and they would say, Oh, you're a former pastor. Like what happened there? And so that's just, like a, that's like a softball
1: pitch of like, you know, let me share with you my testimony. <laughs> no, that's cool. Yeah. Cause yeah. they can see you went to seminary and you're a pastor and what's this and what interesting talking point and to have a conversation and that's awesome. Wonderful. Yeah. Yes.
0: And so I'm sharing like my testimony to like CEOs of these like startups, which was kind of surreal, but very, very cool. And so, yeah, that's been one of the things I've actually enjoyed about uh, not being a pastor anymore. Mm. And um, yeah, also just learning how to be just a member, which is kind of hard Mm. Uh, as someone who's, you know, historically, I've always been trying to be a leader but um, learning to just be a member and to receive and be part of the community—that's yes. um, been really good and actually like a very healing time as well. So
1: so so good, so good to hear. Yeah, um, what was interesting, Sangshim and I—we were at a church for a long time, and then we just were we're members now, and we took the membership class because we felt this we want to be a part of this church, this local community, Montrose Church, and. The last time I was I sat in a membership class, I was the one teaching it. And so then here I am being like just a member and it's wonderful. It's wonderful. We lo- we love our community and just being just being a member and playing our part in in our way. So that that's cool to hear your story and I love that your light shines wherever you are, you know, in the in the church context, Bitcoin startup, Bitcoin meetups, very cool. So I I how did you go from when did you start writing the heme? And tell, tell, tell us about that. Like the, you know, I know you can reference the, you referenced the, the meaning of it in your, that one sentence we started with, but what does he mean? And when did you start writing it and why? Yeah. So I started writing it in April
0: uh, of this year. And so right in the middle of the pandemic and when I uh, left my job and I just had a lot of downtime and um, I was thinking, you know, Uh, what can I do to be productive during this downtime? And um, just was thinking about it and praying about it. And uh, I realized, you know, I think it's time for me to just talk about mental health. Mm. And um, just went through like this process of just like uh, creative brainstorming. And, um, you know, I wanted something to, that represented uh, where I came from and like who I was. And so I chose the word him. And him in Korean means strength, and um, and so that's why I wanted to write a mental health newsletter around him and and so there's a dynamic of using um, a Korean word, uh, yes. yeah, and that for a mental health newsletter, and so wanted to in that way wanted to symbolically represent like an Asian American a newsletter built on um, Asian American mental health. And so, um, yeah, that's it's kind of
1: good. I enjoy. I love <laughs> that. I love it. I love it all. Like it just, even that is just gold, just even all of that. So th- thank you for sharing. It's so beautiful. So, so from that place of strength and I think it's so inviting.
0: Yeah. And, um, I just wanted to reframe the narrative around mental health. Cause I, I think sometimes it's, a lot of it is the focus on the negative stuff and just like how hard it is. And, um, like, yeah, the things that people are struggling with and you should, like, that's definitely a part of it. But um, for me, part of the journey has been um, focusing on my mental health and like thriving, focusing on my mental health and feeling like I'm stronger as a person. And so just wanted to bring a
1: different angle to that. Um, Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, I I love that. And you talk about uh, a variety of things in there. And then I think, what would you want... Um, non-Asians or to know about mental health, how the Asian American community encounters it or experiences discussions about mental health.
0: Yeah. I think one thing is just, one of the things I do in my letters is I talk about culture and um, understanding the differences between cultures is really important for me because it helps um, give context to what people are struggling with. Right. Right. And so uh, as an Asian American, there's something called like honor and shame culture. And due to this type of culture, it's really, really hard for Asians in general to talk about mental health because um, it's a sign of weakness. And if it's a sign of weakness, it may reflect and bring shame on yourself. It might bring shame on your family. Um, It might indicate that like, you know, from... Uh, your parents maybe are deficient in their parenting. Yeah. And that's why you struggle with a mental illness or something like that. And so it's just hard to talk about mental health uh, as as an Asian. And so I think um, understanding culture uh, and, and the context of, of which a person um, grows up in is important. Uh, but another aspect is just that there are principles and contexts or principles and concepts that um, are transcultural, like, Mm -hmm. Uh, There are things about mental health that um, I experience and that I I go through and that I work on that other people from other uh, contexts, cultural contexts can learn from and also apply to themselves because um, some of these principles just, it works in every context. And so uh, I would say, um, even though it is geared towards Asian Americans, I think it could be helpful for, um, yeah, even if you're not, uh, one, because it gives you insight into how an Asian American thinks, but also, um, yeah, and some of the mental health principles that I talk about, and how it could pertain to you in your cultural context as well.
1: Yeah, I know, I think it's great. I mean, yes, a lot of my context is Asian Americans, or are Asian Americans, but I, I really appreciate your writing, your layout. I, mean, yeah. Yeah, I really do appreciate how you present it and the content of it. So, so thank you for providing it. I hope that people who are listening, check it out and even subscribe. And where where can they find your info? And if they want to, like, oh, I want to, I want to read what Andrew's talking about. Where where should they go?
0: Uh,
1: yeah. Well, thanks so much, John. That's super encouraging for
0: me. Um, you know, it's it's been a small hobby project, and honestly, it's still very small. But um, it's been super cool that like the people who do reach out and say thank you, like that's been really really. Juicy. But uh, yeah, you can. Uh, reach out to me at heem.substack.com. So that's H-E-E-M.substack.com. And you can uh, check out all my newsletters there and subscribe. Uh, I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at heempublication, H-E-E-M publication on Twitter and Instagram. So you can find me there also on Facebook.
1: And so that's where you can find me. Okay, great. And I really do hope uh, people can learn because one, I think they will just learn the mental health principles. But also, um, whether you're Asian-American or not, I think you can learn about yourself. And I because I can see myself like, oh, although my family's is not Asian-American, I can identify with some of those aspects. You know, you have a, like a good article about the superpower of Nunchi. Yeah, like, that's that's a fun like if you want to understand Korean-American context, you got to understand that word and heme. And, and so I think it's great. So thank you so much for taking the time in. Th- When I approach you, you're like, oh, I'd like to ask you some questions about EMDR. And so I thought, yeah, let's just do it on the same podcast. So it's almost like I'm handing over the um, interview mic to you, and then you can kind of ask me some questions. I love that because, honestly, um,
0: I've wanted to write an article about EMDR, but honestly, I don't have the expertise. And so when you reached out to me, and I saw that on your website that you um, offered that um, EMDR, I was like, oh, shoot, I want to talk to this guy. I want to hear like his perspective. And so thank you so much for just letting me ask you a couple questions about this and definitely gonna feature this on the uh, newsletter. So awesome. Um, yeah, let's start off with like the basic, right? Like what exactly is EMDR?
1: Sure. oh, yeah, so EMDR is eye movement desensitization reprocessing. Hmm. And that comes from Francine Shapiro, and uh, she she's a therapist who did research. And if she could rename it, she would just name it reprocessing or something around that. But because the research started with EMD, um, it it has this long name, which basically just people use the acronym EMDR. And it references uh, how she learned about it, which is the eye movement. Uh, She was taking a walk in the park. And and I wrote it down 1987, she took the walk in the park. Her research came later. She was thinking about something upsetting, and she noticed her eyes were moving back and forth, and after that, she felt like the distress was less. And so she's like, what? She just was curious. So I tell this story because it is the origin of EMDR, but it's also fascinating. As you're going on your everyday life, who knows? Maybe you'll discover something that is a powerful part of how we function as human beings. So she just realized, oh wow, when her eyes moved back and forth, the distress of the experience or the emotions went down. So fascinating to me.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: So, um, could you just like briefly describe what a session might look like because
0: um, it seems a little like mm-hmm. or yeah, different. It's not. It's not normal or a typical experience. I think.
1: Right. Right. Because it's it's more than simply listening and offering like. Of course that's the core foundation. Good listening, good empathy. Yeah. Um that's a component of it. And there might be a few sessions before you get to EMDR. Some people get to it to the first session. Some people maybe you got to listen take some history. Yeah. Um there are eight phases of which I won't name all of them but you can google it. Yeah. But it would be listening, it would be um identifying maybe a specific memory that is distressing is painful is upsetting. And it could be as big as like a major kind of trauma that people think of a car accident mm-hmm. or some physical abuse or something like that. It could be that, or even more subtle and smaller, like being left out or um, being yelled at, which is like, a, a, we've all been yelled at. So it could be that, and that's not emotionally small, But it's like what we normally think of as small because like, oh, we've all been yelled at. So so in a sense, we all have some trauma to deal with because the way like Peter Levine and Stephen Porges talk about trauma. I think I want to name this so that we know how EMDR functions. Uh, Peter Levine talks about trauma as going through something painful without a compassionate witness. Hmm. And which we all have experienced. Yeah. I mean,
0: under that definition, there's a lot of trauma.
1: <laughs> there is. There, there absolutely is. And uh, Stephen Porges, and I'm, I'm referring, these are therapists. Stephen Porges says trauma is a chronic disruption of connection. Mm. So it's, it's that prevalent. Mm. And so we all, I mean, in a sense, I think most people could benefit from some EMDR. Yes, but usually people come when there there's enough distress. So we'll we'll zero in. Uh, we'll make sure we're grounded, we're in a good place, so we can return to that. So that's really important to the therapist and the client, that you you you're here and now, you're grounded, you feel strong enough, and then you go back to the painful memory. That's guided by the therapist. So the therapist is the guide or the shepherd or the pastor to that, and stays in tune with them. And what Francine found through her own experience is eye movement back and forth that is guided by, there's a light bar that some therapists use, some therapists use their finger or like a pen. Um, You could, some use audio and then just the audio goes back and forth, just a simple beep. Some use tapping on the knees or the hands. You could even do a little bit by yourself, like a butterfly hug, where you give yourself a hug and tap on your shoulders left and right.
0: Mm-hmm. These
1: are things you could do when you're feeling distress. But when it's guided by a professional, they know where to stop and pause and guide and redirect. And that's that's the quote-unquote unusual part of okay, you're feeling this distressful memory. And the therapist is having you do some eye movements periodically. And they don't last that long. We may do a, a number of sessions, but they last 10, 20, 30-ish um, back and forth. Mm-hmm. And then the therapist will just check in and say, what do you notice? Go with that. So what
0: about that experience, right, of the eye movements, of, like, the touching and mm-hmm. thinking about the traumatic experience? What about all of this Um formula, like, why is it effective? Like, why does it work?
1: Okay, there is, we have some intelligent guesses and research. So it's one, it integrates the entire body and nervous system. Mm -hmm. So, you know, left and right brain, um, our nervous system, different parts, the parasympathetic, the sympathetic. So it integrates the nervous system. That's one, uh, one way we can understand it and look at it. And uh, just to reference Dan Siegel, he says his one word definition of mental health is integration. So when we integrate differentiated parts and link them together, that's how we can, that's how we move towards mental health. So this eye movement can help with that. And, you know, one uh, kind of reference that I've heard people say is there are drugs that we give people or that we take, but the doctor's. They just know that it works. They don't know the mechanism of how it works. And so I would say there are medications that all of us as a population are taking, but we don't know exactly how it works. So EMDR is like, we don't know exactly. There's theories out there. You know, there's an adaptive information processing model that Francine talks about. So it integrates parts of memories and our nervous system that are disconnected, that we reconnect. And the eye movement helps or the the touching on the bilateral alternating stimulation helps. So I would say the best way is it just integrates parts of us that are disconnected and we reintegrate it into our system.
0: Yeah. And so when I was I did did a little bit of research on EMDR when I was in counseling school. uh, And one of the aspects that I think that works is that, okay with trauma, um, it it tightens up your body and it kind of locks you down. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and it's really hard for you to re-experience that, uh, that trauma. Right. What EM, EMDR does is that as you go through that experience and as you're doing these eye movements and like this physical uh, sensation stuff, it like it almost um, desensitizes uh, mm. the traumatic experience so that you can kind of dive into it more. And it, it allows you to experience it in a way that isn't so where it doesn't lock you down and it's not so um, powerful and I think that's also part of the process of like why it helps and why it works. Is that? Yes. What yes, yeah. yes. So
1: you, you you, you get to be in touch with the pain of it. it. It will be upsetting for like, and I would say in a session, the upsetting part is 10 to 20 minutes, maybe 30. I don't even think I've had many clients with 30 minutes. It's like, so 20 minutes of feeling distress and it can be intense, But also it can just be mild or moderate, depends on the experience, knowing that you have a compassionate witness with you. Mm -hmm. You are relationally connected to another human being. And these mechanisms help kind of be exposed to the painful memory. You're connected to another person. And they help facilitate that like fight or flight so that you actually you're not engaged in running or freezing. I mean, you might experience it, but then you know you're connected and it, it softens that like reactivity.
0: Right. And, and just for some context, when um, one of the ways that people uh, process trauma or quote unquote, get better from trauma is that uh, is to kind of, like one of the goals is to ex- re-experience it in a way that doesn't lock you down. Yeah. Um, and I think that's kind of a scary thought because it was such a painful experience for a lot of people. But I think that's why it's important to have a compassionate person next to you um, who will love you as you go through that experience. Yes. Because like you, like your definition was, it's not without a compassionate ex- a witness, right? right? But that passionate witness is there now yeah. will help you and love you while you go through that. And I think that's like key to this whole process.
1: Yeah, and for, for people who believe in a higher power or believe in God or believe in Jesus, that yes. can be accessed. I mean, sometimes trauma disconnects us from accessing that presence, but that's why another human mammal, human being, Helps us access, oh, God is here. And then that can be actually a greater resource. There is something called post-traumatic growth that our tra- trauma extends our capacity too far. But then when we experience healing, we have increased capacity than before. So mm-hmm. there's there is hope in when we get healing, we actually have more capacity. And so after EMDR, people often experience like the emotional distress is hugely relief. And I've seen so many clients are like, this is weird. It, I feel way better. I don't understand, but I actually do. That's the the in-person response. And then the negative beliefs about themselves or about the world, they shift and are transformed right in front of my eyes. So that's why one reason I do love that. Wow. And then their their physiological experience is more calm. Right.
0: Um yeah, because trauma is not just mental, but it abs- absolutely is physical, too. You have a strong biological response to the memory. But, okay, so one another question I have is, like, what situations, what context is EMDR
1: useful for? So, you know, like, some a lot of research around, like, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, veterans, war, um, you know, rape, car accidents, like, the big traumas that we all think about. Definitely those, especially like <clears throat> multiple experiences, single incidents, one like a car accident. Those are like fairly readily taken care of. Um, but all the big traumas are then just regular old anxiety that we all experience. Phobias hugely helped can be helped with depression, even chronic pain. So, I mean, these, and I'm just naming the ones that with research. Therapists find ways of integrating it in kind of all aspects of life, but those are the, the big ones with the research. All right, and so one of my last questions is, does it always work? It is a magic pill and it heals everything. No, it's... <laughs> <coughs> um, you Love know. It. So <laughs> obviously, you know, I'm, I'm joking. It is very effective. And then it says 80% of trauma survivors have um, experienced no symptoms after three sessions. So so that's specifically trauma survivors. I would say I see it being helpful almost with everyone. Does it work? We'd have to define what work means. Does it reduce um, tension and fight flight? I would say it does, but that doesn't mean like there's other aspects and other venues and avenues that we have to engage to experience fullness of healing. I would say it's been super helpful for all the clients that have used it. But we also, it doesn't heal everything 100%. But one of the fastest um, ways of experiencing healing and building on your strength or Asian American or men, these are the, sometimes people don't want to speak the, the content of the trauma. And with this, you don't need to. You don't actually need to. You just need to be able to report to the therapist okay, I'm experiencing it, but you don't have to actually say it, which is a huge freedom for a lot of people. Mm, Yeah, that's a
0: really good point. Um, Especially with like an honor and shame culture, I can imagine someone saying like, yeah, I I don't want to tell you what I'm going through. Uh, And so I can see that being super useful.
1: And they don't need to, they just need to be in touch with it. And as long as there's a trusting relationship, like, okay, the client's actually there, you don't have to tell me the details. 100%, no need. That's crazy. Um, okay, yeah, and and so just wanted to, like,
0: one of my last thoughts is that, you know, with any intervention that a therapist suggests, um, it's not going to be 100% success rate, right? And the reason for that is because we're human, and each one of us is different, and we respond differently to different things. And so, um, I mean, to me, it's encouraging that EMDR, for the most part, seems to be successful, but... And, and if you're going through trauma or if you're going through um, any like maybe you have depression or, or like severe anxiety, I, yeah, maybe it might be helpful for you to talk to someone and get EMDR. Um, treat that as an opportunity for you to, to better yourself or to get help. But if it doesn't work, um, I just want to encourage you and say like, you know, it's okay. It's okay if it doesn't work because um, it's not going to work for everybody. And so don't be discouraged. Don't think that something's wrong with you. Um, just just know that sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And um, John, thank you so much for just sharing all that because um, honestly, it's EMDR can seem a little strange and a little weird to somebody on the outside, right? Who's never experienced anything like that before. And so I love that we can have a conversation and you break down like how it works, uh, why it works, and like the history behind it. And just to kind of normalize that experience so that hopefully other people can, might be more open to the idea of getting it.
1: I hope so, because it, I do see it bring relief to people, to myself, to clients. And it's that's such a gift for people to experience. Love
0: it. All right, John. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. I got to head out. I've got another call, but you this go. is- You the-
1: go. Thank you, Andrew. Take care. God bless. Love to you all. Bye. Bye. May God bless you and may we become- the kind of people who experience the God who sees us, who hears us, and who knows the depth of what we are going through, so that we know that he is with us, and he is doing something about this by strengthening our spirits. May we become the people of love. Amen.